Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 234. Today is Sunday, the 21st of May, 2017, and this interview is with Alan Stevens, who's been on the show before. He is the media coach. Alan's a reputation specialist, journalist, PR expert, speaker, and author. In this podcast, Alan and I discuss the art of storytelling in this frenetic world and the challenge of getting your message out. We look at the lessons to be learned from the Trump and Macron presidents, as well as the keys to managing a PR crisis. Alan also delivers some pearls on making great speeches. Lots of wonderful content. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to the quick. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Today, uh, someone who I met a good long time ago, Alan, uh, and taught me many things about the art of speaking. And so, Alan, tell us who you are, in your words, and what's your mindset these days? Okay, well, thank you, Minter. It's a pleasure to talk to you again. I'm, I'm known as the media coach. I've been in the business of communication, training, and speaking for some 40 years now, quite a long time. I've uh, written a number of books on it, and I'm very active on social media as well as media coach. And my main business these days is helping people to communicate, particularly in a crisis. I've got a lot of clients that I work with who need crisis communication, both individuals and large organizations. Uh, I also coach professional speakers, and I run my own web radio show and uh, newsletter, which is, uh, as you know, goes out to lots of people just like this one. So and certainly, yeah, we're in a similar business. We are, and I'll be pumping out your all your details afterwards. So um, today, so you've been in this business for a long time. Then maybe just tell us, uh, how, do you, how would you describe how life... As a media coach, has evolved over the years. Well, it's, it's, the similar thing is that it's about helping people deliver a message which is understood at the other end, and I think that's basic communication that goes back centuries, millennia. Mm-hmm. Um, with regard to what I do, then obviously there's been the impact of digital media, uh, which has been around now for longer than people think, twenty-five to thirty years. I, I started an internet service provider back in nineteen ninety-four. Um, which is still running, called Witch Online, and, and that, <clears throat> that became a little social network. So these things are not brand new. They've been, they've been around for a while as well. But I think the, the way that it's changed really is that people are looking for more immediacy. They want instant knowledge. Uh, they want instant response. Uh, they want instant gratification, I suppose. And, it, and it, I think that's, that's the trend that I've seen more than any other, is that people think, I know it's available, so just hand it to me. Now, this is, is what I needed. Is that instant gratification tied in with the attention span story, the lack of attention span? No, you see, there, there I disagree with many experts. I don't think attention span has changed one iota. Uh, I think that's a kind of biological, neurological thing, and I think our attention spans are the same as they always were. Uh, I think our patience has worn thinner, and therefore we, we tend to want things a little bit faster. But I think people can retain attention for as long as they I mean, Films are getting longer, actually. You know, it used to be a 90-minute film, and now you're looking at two and a half to three hours for some of the blockbusters. So I'm, I'm not, I know they've got lots of little choppy bits in, in, in all the way through. I don't, I'm not convinced attention span has changed at all, but I think people's demand for something to happen quickly has changed. Well, and, and therefore, so on the one hand, you have the delivery platform to provide for instantaneous communication. 
But on the yeah. other side, you've got a lot of choice as well. And does that matter in the in this notion of impatience? I, th- I think it does. I mean, people people can choose their own medium of communication now, and, and even in business, people choose to communicate in different ways. And you need to know the preferred method of communication of whoever you're dealing with. And I think it's it's very interesting. I mean, some people talk about short form and long form communication. And long-form communication, like long blog posts, for example, are, are still very effective. There are some people who like that sort of communication. I think you, you put your finger on it there, by saying people want the choice. People want to be able to decide, do I want a quick summary or do I want more um, considered content that I can sit down and spend 20 minutes reading? All right, so if you're in the domain of pumping or giving out information, telling out stories, you're in a world where patience is lower. Yes. The supply is heavy. Mm-hmm. What kind of tips do you have then? If, if let's say, you want to do long form, mm. you, you can provide in order to get through and be listened to by the audience you want. So, same tips apply as have always applied, Minter, and that is the, the tips that filmmakers and film directors know and screenwriters know and, and novelists know. You've got to grab somebody at the beginning and you've got to hang on to them uh, throughout that bumpy ride that you take them through. And I think that's, those principles are the same as they always were. And you know, whether, whether you're telling a story digitally or whether you're telling it in an oral tradition uh, or whether it's a film, you've, you've really got to get people at the beginning. It's the only time everybody listens and watches is right at the beginning. Otherwise, um, they click off. So then yeah. that means, Alan, listening to you, that your title, and not to use the word clickbait, is important. Yeah. It is. It is. And, and again, headline writers have known this for a long time, that if you can't grab people with a good headline or a stand first, you know, the first line of, a, of an article, then you're, you're not going to get them at all because they will just bypass. There is so much flashing past their eyes in terms of headlines and media and, as you say, clickbait, if you want to call it that, mm. that uh, if you don't grab them in those first few seconds, you never see them again. For having studied film and, and now having, I could say, produced a film, yes. the... We used to look at the way the opening scenes of a film were. And if you can think of um, uh, Once Upon a Time in the West and these long, very rambling openings, do these still work? I I think they do. I mean, a lot of people say that you've you've got to get to the action fairly quickly. And that's that's the sad thing about film trailers, isn't it? That all the action takes place in the trailer. You don't need to watch the film. (laughs) That's it. Um, And everything else is filler. Um, but I, I think you, you, can, you can have those kind of long scenes, provided they've got intrigue, provided they've got some interest. If people want to know what happens at the end of that long tracking shot or whatever it is, then fine. Um, but if it's, if it's just boring, then it's the same as giving them a boring short first scene. So I think it, it's about interest and intrigue. It's about getting people hooked. And I think you can hook people into a longer story, a longer narrative, provided you offer them some element of, of intrigue, of, of excitement, of interest. Well, there's certainly the music, of course, that helped in yes. that one, that, that tied you along, which makes me think of the value of silence mm-hmm. and space. How do you use that with impatient, hungry, quick-to-click-off people? Well, that's very interesting because I, I do some comedy as well. I do a bit of stand-up comedy, and, and the value of silence, the value of the pause is critical. You've got to give people time to understand the line, the setup, the extend before you come to the punchline. And you've got to give people time to appreciate the humor. So it's the same. I think it's the same in any form of communication. If you don't give people that silence, that pause, then 
you're shortchanging them because you're onto the next topic before they've absorbed it, before they've received it, before they've fully appreciated it. So the art of pausing, the art of silence, I think is 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 much underrated. It is so. Uh, we, uh, you know, you you teach uh, speech uh, speech writing and ability to make great speeches. What do you what do you think of TED? The format TED, uh, you mm. know, this eighteen minute yeah. Yeah. format on a red spot and all this. How, how do you subscribe to all of that, or are you? I do. Well, I do. I mean, the thing the thing, the thing is, TED is is an eighteen minute. It used to be twenty, and people overran, so they, they called it eighteen. Um, and many of them are much shorter. There's a much shorter form of TED. There's a five or six minute form. You know, some are only two or three minutes. Mm-hmm. I don't think the the length is that significant. I, I I do subscribe to the theory that you can only deliver one idea in any length of communication. So whether it's a TED, 18 minute, or an hour's keynote, or a full day event, I think there's only one thing that we ever come away with uh, any in any meaningful sense. Mm-hmm. So I think the TED format works very well because it does focus down the people who are delivering. And, and TED speakers tend to be people who are not necessarily professional speakers, they're not practice speakers. They've got a great idea that will change the world. So I, I think it's a good discipline, but as we all know, and it's probably not Mark Twain that said it, that it's tough to write a shorter speech than a long one. Right. Um, but whoever said it, they were right. Yeah. Right. If I had more time, I'd have written, written you a shorter yeah. letter. That's right, that's right, yeah. So, you know, I, I wanted to um, chat with you because I love your weekly newsletter, Alan. And, uh, and you know, you, you like to call out uh, blunders and, and you also like to um, praise good, good speeches. I do. We are, we're living in a world there where media as a whole is, is completely upended. They're struggling to find their business models, whether it's The Guardian, New York Times and so on. What do you? What would you say uh, about the way that media politicians are communicating to media? And you know, obviously, I wanted to talk a little bit, not flippantly, but um, seriously, about Trump, okay. uh, about Macron. Uh, how do you? How do you think? Who? Who do you think is doing a good job speaking poli- as a politician? And, well, there, there are different elements of that. In terms of the speaking, um, I, I would say there, there, there are a different group of people that those who are using social media as communication. So let me, so let me do the latter one first and sure. talk about social media. And just take uh, Donald Trump as an example. His campaign spent $70 million, what's about 60 million euros or something like that, on, social, on Facebook alone in their last election campaign, the successful election campaign. That's an awful lot. And what they were doing very cleverly, they were using micro-targeting to get the groups as small as 100 people so that only that group would see that message uh, and nobody else was aware of it. And it was very precisely targeted and it was aimed at them and it was pushing their buttons. And I think that that's a form of communication, that very, very precise micro-targeting, which has developed as a result of Facebook knowing a lot about us, for example. Mm-hmm. And I think that, So I think some politicians have been very effective at using that. Um, I have to say, I haven't listened to a lot of Monsieur Macron's um, speeches, but I get the impression that he's a very effective communicator uh, verbally. That's that's the impression that I see from a distance. You may have a different view, I don't know. But he's he seems to come across well. I think um, I think Mr Trudeau in Canada uh, also presents extremely well. But the interesting thing about both of them, and this is common to many politicians, is the division which is created. And I think the the big difference between politics now and politics even 20 years ago is that it's much more sharply divided. And I think I think that's a consequence of the social media age uh, much more than anything else. How does that come about? Why does social media provoking that? Well, 
Because when you when you create your your communities on social media, your connections, your friends, they tend to be like-minded people. So we talk about the echo chamber. We talk about the red feed and the blue feed. We we tend to read information that that confirms our view. You know, there's a lot of this confirmation bias going on, and we don't see anything opposed unless somebody who is a friend of ours and thinks like us brings it up to complain about it. So we we tend to get a very um, singular worldview. And I, I, th- I think that's a trend which is worrying, actually. Mm. Um, and so I go out of my way to join Facebook groups where I don't agree with most of the people because I know, I know I'm going to have to debate with them and find out what they think. Right. Well, so I, I think that's a beautiful topic, Alan, because, well, so I, I've been recently doing a lot of uh, punditing on television. Yes. And and I find myself inevitably with, uh, and this was in France, uh, on the France 24, and I'm constantly... Uh, a, Surrounded by people who are specific parties. So yeah. they're obviously going to have their platform, their pitch, their story to tell. And mm. I feel I'm sort of in the middle. And I, I consider my role a bridge maker. Yes. Because otherwise you have all blues yelling and screaming on their side. Then the reds yeah. screaming about the blues yeah. on this side and vice versa. But who are, is there, what is, how important is this role of bridge making? I mean, the, the persons who are able to comment and not take offence and find ways in. I, I think it's critical. All, all credit to you for that, I mean, for doing that. And I, I, I try and do that in a small way myself. Yeah. I think it's essential that you've got to have a slightly dispassionate, I mean that in the absolute sense, a dispassionate view of what's going on. So that you can say to people, where are the commonalities? You know, you guys actually agree on 90% of what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, like, like you and I, we're yeah. in England... Yeah. Uh, so that is who we're defending. Let's think about our national national interest as opposed to our party interest. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think a lot of people have become more and more partisan. You know, literally, you know, yeah. in, in the party sense, and but also very um, crudely nationalistic as well. Mm. So there is there is a nationalistic issue in lots of countries now all over the world. But I think that's that's kind of blinded people to many of the benefits of nationalism. I mean, there are benefits of nationalism. You know, being proud of your country and being able to do things and you know, boost the economy and so on, those are all good things. But people have become very, very narrow-minded about the sorts of nationalism that they want, and they believe it's us, us first and nobody else matters. And that's, mm. that's, not, that's not what we want. Well, it's not what I want. <laughs> Coming back to um, this notion of uh, Trump and Macron or, or yeah. any of the other politicians for that matter, one of the things that I uh, took away from the French elections in particular was how Mélenchon, who is the sort of populist on the left, yeah. and Le Pen, Marine Le Pen, the populist on the right, both actually had the largest followings on social media. The largest, uh, I would say, followings as in retweets and engaged mm. audience, as opposed to the middle of the road. Yes. So taking that as a context, how does a brand try to deliver its message to crack through and and what kind of lessons can you learn or one can one learn from the way politicians are going or is it maybe the other way around no well, no no i think you're right i think it's that old cliche about passion if you're passionate about something you're passionate about it and you want to tell people um and getting evangelists or brand evangelists if you want to call them that on your side if you're producing a product or a service is is very very important and in fact it's more important than advertising these days as we know um, people tend to dismiss advertising. They're dismissing a lot of the politicians' sake as well, actually, unless the politicians get kind of down and dirty with them and, and talk about the issues that they're really interested in, almost face-to-face, using things like video on social media. So I think as far as 
um, commercial concerns are concerned, um, companies that do products and services, they've, they've got to look at it and say, how do we create a community? I mean, what's a great example? Harley-Davidson, mm-hmm. for example. Harley-Davidson owners are passionate mm-hmm. about Harley-Davidson. What I hadn't realized till I met some of the guys from Harley-Davidson is that most of their profits don't come from motorbikes. Most of their profits come from the memorabilia, the, uh, the key rings with the logo on, the jackets. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they, well, people there are so passionate, they have the, the name tattooed on them. I mean, how, how strong does a brand have to be that their people will do that? They are literally marked. Yeah, that means they don't have to do as much advertising as a lot of other companies. Well, so, but Alan, so you and I have been around the block a certain degree. Talking about passion as mm. a business, let's, let's say I'm a bank, let's say I'm an insurance company, yeah. and, or, or any other uh, business for that matter that's sort of not a music, musician or entertainer. There's always this element of performance, return on investment, yeah. seriousness that goes yeah. ekes in there. And so is there a way for people in banking and finance and so on to be passionate and cut through, or are they just doomed for the closet? With you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we've all known passionate bankers, not many. Yeah. Um, I think, I think for those sorts of organisations, in fact, for every sort of organisation, it's it's the passion that comes from the people who support the product. Like I was talking about those Harley Harley people. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not so much that the people who deliver the products have to be passionate, although that helps. And it helps to engender that sense. But what I think is they're creating a sense of um, enthusiasm. It's probably hard to get passionate about a banking product anyway. But I know that there are some banks, and a great example would be First Direct here in the UK, which I've been a uh, First Direct customer for 25 years, and I tell everybody about it because it just works and it's great. And therefore, I suppose I'm an evangelist. I'm an ambassador for them. And I think generating that kind of loyalty is, is where the passion really is. So it's not necessarily in the way that you deliver the product or the way you talk about your own product. It's how other people talk about what you do. Well, so First Direct, if they're listening, um, should contact you and, and thank you. Do they yes. ever do that? <laughs> sure. I must have put loads of customers their way. They're, they're absolutely splendid. All right. So, Alan, you are a man of influence. You've got an enormous network. And I'm going to imagine that there are some companies that have re- reached out to you to, uh, to say, listen, hey, could you talk about us or mm-hmm. and engage with you as an influencer? What advice do you have to brands and companies that are trying to get, now work on this influencer marketing style of, of uh, getting the word out? I think you need to look for the people who are already interested in what you do. I don't, I don't think, I mean, you're quite right. I do get approached by companies from time to time. Um, I don't think you can just approach somebody and say, here's a sum of money. Can you go and tell people how great we are? I mean, that, that, that may have worked. It may work with some people. It doesn't, doesn't work with a lot. It doesn't work with me. And I think what, what they need to do is to be, to be listening to what people are saying about them. You know, the first job of a company is to listen and find out what their customers, their clients their advocates are actually saying, and then and then talk to them and say, you know, we notice that you seem to be very keen on whatever it is we do. Um, you know, can we send you some advanced information about something? You know, would it would it help if you knew a bit more? Whatever it is, so it's more about cultivating their supporters than going out and finding people they think are influential. So, what are, what about celebrity spokespeople? Why is it that they accept money? <laughs> it's, that's twas ever thus. I mean, that that's a really interesting market. And, and celebrity spokespeople, I don't think, are as powerful as, as they used to be uh, for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes they get caught doing something, and that's always been the case. Um, 
or it might become apparent that they're being paid to endorse something. There was a bit of a Twitter storm a couple of years ago about a, a few footballers in the UK that kept mentioning this particular kind of chocolate bar in their tweets. And, you know, they, they were commenting on a game and, oh, I must just stop for one of these. I'm not going to say what it is. I must just stop for one of these. And people thought, well, that's a bit strange. Turned out they then had a £100,000 contract with this company to mention them at least once per game. And the people don't like that. And that, that turns people off. So that is a bad way for a company to behave. What they should do is to find the people that like their stuff anyway and say, well, come in and talk to us because then they're already passionate about something. Well, I mean, fortunately, there are legal parameters now trying to render people who are being sponsored uh, transparent about Yes, exactly that. That's quite, quite, right, quite right too. <clears throat> so we live in a world where there is, I would say, crisis abounding us and oh, I, yes. is that not the case or is it i mean is it is it more than before or let's just start with that is it more than before or is it what what, what is it what is it why do i feel we're in constant crisis mode because you hear about it more <laughs> the the information comes more quickly um i mean at the time we're recording this there was a there was a cyber attack in uh, in the uk and i felt all over the world about 160 countries uh, were hacked into by some ransomware. We heard about that within an hour of it happening. So all, all of a sudden, we're now we're now panicked about our computers, and we suddenly think, "I wonder if my computer's safe, and I wonder where my data is, and that sort of thing." Whereas in previous times, we we wouldn't have heard that until we were in the newspaper the next day, if we heard it at all. So I, I think there is an element of the the immediacy of communication makes a difference, and also there there is a much stronger element of well, I suppose hype is the right word. It is hype. Um, people get very concerned about something they can't have an impact on and which doesn't affect them very much. All of a sudden, it becomes important. Um, so I'm, I'm not, not quite sure what, what anybody can do about that, but what it means is we need, to, we need to be thinking very carefully about how we react to things and whether they're as important as they appear to be. All right, so I want to unpack that a little bit. On the one hand, we need to think about it. On the second hand, it's coming quickly. Yes. So... Whereas in the past, you and I lived in the fax machine era, oh, yes. you know, and, and, you know, next day news and all that. And you had plenty of time to ponder it and have emergency meetings and get powwow and call in the agency. What are we going to do? How are we going to manage this? And then the next morning you're in and you got your message. The issue today is that you've got sometimes less than 60 minutes uh, to yes. get out your, your counter proposal, run your narrative. So how does one manage that? Uh, well, that's, that's what I help people to do, actually. And, and what we have in place is a plan for some likely scenarios. We think through, th you can't think of everything, but you can think of some generic categories of things that might happen. And you have a prepared response you know, with a couple of uh, blanks you can fill in should that actually happen. Including, then, I, I, you know, who to call, what, when, where. Yeah, exactly that. So you've, you've, got a, you've got a response plan. You've got a, a generic statement that you can use. It's all got to be true. You can't, you can't fake these things. But what it means is, You've you've got a it's like you've got a plan for the unexpected, which sounds ridiculous, mm. but you but you do. Uh, you have to plan for things that might happen. I think we I think that's generally a, a true as well. I mean, it's a truth for us in general is that we do need to plan for the unexpected because the unexpected will happen no matter what. Mm. So in the in the notion of uh, reacting quickly, uh, there are two things I wanted to look at. One is. How to, what is the message we're going to do and how we're going to react quickly? And I want to sort of put that in the context of passion. Why yes. do I say that? It's because if you are 
the brand that's being attacked. I'm, you know, the individual or the person who founded the company. Yeah. Your response becomes just a an instinctive response. It's Alan thinking about what he is, who he is, and knows who he is, and therefore will respond. If you're the CEO mm. and have been parachuted in, so you're, I would call, a mercenary CEO, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> your ability to know what you think internally is, 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 by definition, less instinctive. Yes. I mean, versus a founder. Yes. So how do you inculcate that in your team? Because in the end of the day, we only have a few people who are the Jeff Bezos of the, of the Amazons. Mm. Yeah. How do you deal with that? It's a difficult one. And that, again, it comes back to preparation that you've, 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 a new CEO coming in has got to get into the company culture as quickly as they possibly can. But it, it may be, of course, they've come in to change the culture. Um, you know, it, and it may be that a founder doesn't always respond very well because they're hidebound by the past. Mm-hmm. So I think, there's, I think there's a mixture. I think there's a balance. But I think you know, it is very important for anyone coming into a company, a new CEO, to very quickly think what they might do if, if this, then that. How would I handle that? How would I deal with that? And think ahead about those possible options, those possible things that might happen. And coming back to the founder, you know, the, the owner, founder, uh, business person, they've got to be thinking, is it the same as when I started this? You know, are people seeing the company in the same way? Um, should I keep doing what I've been doing before? So I, I think they've both got reason to, to be aware of what's happening at the moment. All right, so what would be, let's say, you know, shit's shit hit the fan, yeah. bad news has come in, what are your top three things that you need to be doing? First thing is that you need to be as aware as possible of what's going on. So you need to be informed. You need to know what's happening. Second thing is you need to make yourself the center of attention, the center of information, so that nobody starts to speculate about what things are happening and you put up a banner saying no comment or we'll, we'll talk to you in a day's time or whatever it is. You have to become the central repository of information. And the third thing is you have to be aware of whatever anyone else is saying, and you have to deal with any negatives or untruths that are out there. And so this is the second one about how do you, how do you own the space? Well, what you do is you, you, make, you give the, the media regular updates, for example. So even if there's not a lot to say... You say, we will have another statement for you at 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock or, when, or, or whenever it is. And you invite people to call you. And you put out whatever information you can, which is valid and genuine and verified. Because you, you have to be the first port of call for anyone who wants information about what's happening. That, that's the aim. You've got to establish that and you've got to maintain that throughout any crisis. So that presumably also says, this is the number to call if you have any questions. Yep. That's sort of like, make yourself available. And absolutely. It was something that, that Bill Marriott did extremely well. There were those awful hotel bombings in Bali a few years ago. Mm. Bill Marriott, the owner of Marriott Hotels, on his blog, put out a lot of information. Mm. If you're worried about these people, ring this number. If you want to email somebody, it's here. Uh, we can call you back if you leave your number on, on this. And so he put out a whole load of information within two hours of the incident occurring, which, which helped to deal with all that. So this, there wasn't a speculation about it. They all, they all came to Marriott to find out what was going on. So a lot of times, um, and I had a, something of a, a good, good discussion, we'll call it that, with another chap who's involved in PR in crisis management, and mm. the topic was when not to react. Yes. So how does one determine, because you have to react quickly. All right, great. Yeah. Well, I don't, but then how do I know when it's too late? Mm. So how, how do you gauge the... 
it's, you get a feel for it, obviously, and you bring in experts like me and your friend to, you <laughs> to, to give you advice. Um, and with some companies, I'm on, I'm on a retainer, so they can phone me at any time and, and just you know, check out what they might need to say if something occurs. I think, I think with, with all these things, man managing a crisis is always, is always a delicate balance. Um, and there are some things where you look at it and you think, actually, no, that, that, that doesn't merit a press statement and certainly doesn't merit a press conference. And with a lot of these things, they're, they're individuals who've got a complaint, have got, got an issue, and you can resolve that at an individual level. If they then kind of go postal, if they go on social media and start recording videos about it and start posting Facebook messages and start getting a lot of support, then you've got the problem. Then you've got to go public. Then you've got to deal with it. So I think it's a case of having an awareness of how big the problem is and keeping aware of how that problem matures, develops, to decide how you're going to respond. Do you have a preferred type of platform to do that? In other words, if you want to, you see an individual who has 423 followers, no big deal. Another individual with 423,000 followers, big deal. Mm. And then to find out how retweeted or, you know, whatever platforms that might have been posted on initially. Do you have yeah. any, do you suggest that you should be having a robust system around that or, or and do you, what, what do you recommend? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I advise people to use systems like socialmention.com, uh, Addictomatic. Um, and if they're really uh, doing this seriously, there's something called Radiant 6. Um, all, all of those systems will monitor things like your reputation on social media. They will look at mentions of, of your organization. They will look at the the sentiment, uh, some of the more sophisticated systems would actually do semantic analysis and look at the sentiment that's being expressed to see whether it's good, bad, or indifferent. And that stuff needs to come in in like a, a real-time feed. And somebody's got to be watching it. And somebody's got to look at the alerts and find out what's happening because you're absolutely right. If somebody's got half a million followers on Twitter and they put out a tweet having a go at you, you need to know. Yeah. You need to know what's going on. And, then, and uh, you know, this is the whole hack you were mentioning for the, uh, this hit the NHS, amongst others, yeah. was sent out on a Friday evening. Two weeks yeah. ago, we had the, the hack of the Macron campaign in France. <laughs> Many years ago, we had the Nestle, um, you know, the KitKat, uh, all, you know, That's all right. palm oil that went viral on the Friday night. Yep. So the issue is, you know, these people who work in corporate hours are, are not, cannot switch off. Absolutely. No, no, there are no corporate hours anymore. Um, <laughs> everything <laughs> happens all the time. It's, there's, 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 there's a line in the Eagles song, I think, life in the fast lane, everything yeah. all the time. And that's, that's, that's how it is. Um, and we need, so we need, if we can't be monitoring it personally, and we can't, we need systems in place. And basically it's, it's that alert thing, isn't it, where... If it gets to a, if something gets to a certain level, something goes ping, uh, it lands in your inbox or it sends you a text or whatever it is, and somebody's got to be monitoring it. And that, that's the interesting thing, of course. In the old days, it was about people using um, even faxes. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody had to be beside the fax machine. Yeah. <laughs> Man the fax. Phone. Man the fax. Yeah. So, so people always have to know what's going on all the time, uh, and you've got you've got to you've got to make sure someone's doing that. It sort of comes a little bit full circle where we began our conversation before we started recording, which is everybody's crazed. I don't know anybody who's not busy. So, um, Alan, so thank you for, very much for jumping on with me and um, getting your story across. Uh, hopefully uh, they, they've the listeners have retained at least one thing from what you had to say. 
Uh, always great to uh, chat with you. Um, what's the best way for people to connect with you, Alan? What do you prefer? They can connect with me at Media Coach. It's mediacoach.co.uk is my website. Uh, if they want to find me on Twitter, it's Media Coach. If they want to find me on Facebook, it's Media Coach. Or Instagram, or there's, LinkedIn. There's or, maybe a message in that too. Be consistent yeah, in your presence. Be consistent with your branding. Yeah, and, uh, and of course, I highly recommend people sign up for your newsletter. Alan, thank you thank so you. much. Thank you, Minda. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way. Rid me of the gray and heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of self security. Oh, I wouldn't care about the art form as long as you would feel warm, wrapped in canvas. Hold me.
My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.